My name is Mariju Baluyat, and I am currently a medical simulation fellow at Indiana University and pediatric emergency medicine faculty at Riley Hospital. I just graduated from pediatric emergency medicine fellowship this past June of 2021. And like with many other graduates that year, the job market was incredibly rough. On top of trying to find my first real job out of training, we're still in the midst of this pandemic where hospitals and life in general just had a lot of uncertainty that made it so difficult to move forward. Of course, my friends and family and coworkers would check in during this stressful time for me and offer their words of wisdom or reassurance. We all know it's hard to go through all this specialty training. And then to not have the job that you thought was there when you started medical school is like the rug being pulled from underneath your feet. I fully appreciate the support I got. But one thing that bothered me a little at the time and honestly bothers me more now is that I frequently got suggestions that I could or should take the year off and start a family with my husband. So this advice itself is not what bothers me. What bothers me is that my husband, who is also in medicine and also going through this crazy job hunt in parallel to me, has never once heard this suggestion or advice from his mentors or his support system. No one is reassuring him that not to worry that he could just take the year off and raise our first child or that he should have careful considerations of who will help him with the childcare, that he may need to go part-time until the kids are in school or to be careful with his other academic endeavors because he may find that he's spreading himself too thin. If you can't tell, all of these things have been conversations that people have had with me. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to take that year off or to go part-time or whatever works for you and your partner and your family. And I'm appreciative of all the conversations I've had with, with the people in my support system. The fact that we're in this world today and these conversations or lack of conversations are still happening in this dichotomous way means we have so much further to go. I'm so glad that we can share our stories like this because hearing what other women are going through and have gone through at different stages in their careers has been unbelievably motivating for me as new faculty. And I'm looking forward to being part of a cultural shift and having more of these conversations moving forward. This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Closing the gender pay gap. Welcome back to part three in our series on women in emergency medicine. This episode continues our deep dive into how gender impacts the specialty of emergency medicine. Our focus today is on the gender pay gap. And to do that, we spoke with the person who literally wrote the textbook on closing the gender pay gap. Dr. Amy Gottlieb is a professor of medicine and obstetrics and gynecology and associate dean of faculty affairs at Springfield campus for UMass Chan Medical School. She is the Bay State Health VP, and she started her career in finance. She is currently chair-elect of the Association of American Medical Colleges Group on Women in Medicine and Science. Phew, that's a lot of titles, and she's clearly an expert in this area. Amy, walk us through a little bit about the data that shows us about financial compensation for women in medicine historically. 
Sure. It's a great question. So for 40 years, women have represented a significant proportion of medical school graduates and currently account for almost half of all medical students, graduate medical trainees, and faculty and physicians nationwide. Despite this representation for decades, women continue to experience well-documented disparities in opportunity and compensation within medicine. The equity of opportunity that should be flowing from numeric parity is just not materializing. Currently, women physicians earn 72 cents on the dollar in this country compared with equally talented male counterparts. And unfortunately, this pay gap is persistent. In fact, it's grown over the last five years. Wow, that's really crazy. Where does emergency medicine fall in all of this? You know, so as I said, overall, women physicians are in 72 cents on the dollar in this country and in emergency medicine. And, and, and most of the data is from academic emergency medicine, but very robust. Women earn between 89 and 94 cents on the dollar, depending on their race or ethnicity. And, you know, women broadly in this country earn less than men in every specialty. And for those folks in academic medicine at every academic rank. What do you think is driving these differences? Is it RVU-based? Is it bias? Like, why do we see this gender pay gap? So, you know, we can think of the gender pay gap as a crucible in which all the forces that diminish women's professional value within our society and our institutions converge. This is particularly true in medicine, where there are multiple inflection points in women's career trajectories where our traditional way of paying folks, i.e. valuing the work that they do, disproportionately rewards the way men physicians have worked and lived for generations. So it's really critical for us to identify, acknowledge, and address these contextual forces as we set about correcting the practice of paying equally talented women less than their male counterparts. Compensation methodology in medicine typically rests on a formula of base salary determined by commercially available benchmarking data, plus additional monetary reward for rank, for leadership, and productivity to get to your kind of RVU question. This methodology contributes structurally to gender-based salary inequities because of women's diminished earning potential in each domain. Let me give a couple examples. Regarding base salary, there's often a considerable difference between the dollar amounts at the low and high ends of these benchmark ranges, allowing organizations or practice managers wide berth in making compensation determinations. So salary expectations and vigorousness of negotiation during initial hire, as you could imagine, are critical to establishing where an individual person falls in the established range and is potentially subject or vulnerable to gender bias. Productivity-based compensation is also impacted negatively by increased demands on women for organizational service. There's lots of research to support that. Increased time spent with patients that the data and the research show results in better outcomes, but lower volumes and greater responsibility for domestic duties compared with male colleagues. Last but not least, limited formal leadership roles and less sponsorship. Hopefully your audience is aware of the 
term sponsorship, which differs a little bit from mentorship. Um, so limited formal leadership roles and less sponsorship to access those roles decrease the compensation that attaches to these opportunities. And I'd like to just make one other comment about this very interesting and important phenomenon called occupational gender segregation. There is emerging evidence that reveals that women trainees in medicine tend to be directed towards certain specialties like pediatrics that require traditionally feminine attributes and away from procedural, more technical ones like orthopedics. And this phenomenon, again, called occupational gender segregation has tremendous consequences for pay equity because in the U.S. labor market as a whole, a loss of prestige and a decline in earnings have been shown to occur after a large number of women enter a field or occupation. So when an entire specialty loses ground in terms of relative compensation, like we've seen, say, in OBGYN or PEDS, and that's reflected in the salary benchmarks that we use, the earning potential of all women entering that field is put at considerable risk. Okay, that's a ton of really helpful information. Let's take a second to review. The way we traditionally structure compensation is based on activities that generally reward traditionally masculine activities. Think about what you have always been told constitutes hard work or success. There are four basic components that make up our salary. Base salary, productivity, rank or seniority, and leadership. We can be intentional at each step to advocate for equity and redefine hard work and success. Can you expand a little bit upon the term organizational service? Like, what does that mean? What does that look like for women versus men? So the data show that women spend more time on what are called non-promotable tasks in their organization. So we can call that organizational service, citizenship institutional housekeeping. But what this means is this is work that has little visibility or impact, work that benefits the organization but doesn't contribute to performance evaluation or metrics for advancement. And there's some really interesting research around this, around volunteerism, that shows that women are more likely to volunteer for tasks in mixed gender groups. They also receive more requests to volunteer than men, and they're more likely to say yes when they're asked to volunteer. So there's this implicit understanding that women are going to raise their hands for these tasks more than men. Now, advancement is one of those whys in the road, right? Like that's one of those spots, leadership opportunities, research grants, all of that type of stuff. Let's dive into that one a little bit deeper. How is that different based off of your gender? So women's trajectory in medicine on both the academic and the non-academic side of the house looks like a funnel with fewer and fewer women the higher one goes in seniority and leadership. And so despite representing almost half the workforce, only 18% of department chairs across the country are women in emergency medicine. It's actually less, 11% in emergency medicine. Only 18% of med school deans are women, and only 15% of healthcare CEOs are women. Is there a difference in the community or non-academic setting versus the academic setting? Not really. 
The statistic that I often cite in conversations around the gender pay gap in medicine is 72 cents on the dollar compared with equally talented male colleagues. That number actually comes from a very large data set that's primarily community-based docs. The statistic for academic physicians is pretty much in that range. It's 67 to 77 cents on the dollar, depending on race or ethnicity of the women in question. And so really, both are pretty significantly low. Really sad that when we look at this, that not only is gender a point of bias, but race as well, and that that can tie into and really make make it harder to succeed and stay equitable. You wrote an amazing book that's like a roadmap for how to dig ourselves out of this, right? This is all these different whys. You're going to walk us through it. Tell us a little bit about your book. What's the title and where can we get it? Yes, the book is indeed a roadmap, which was the whole intention. Uh, It's called Closing the Gender Pay Gap in Medicine, a roadmap for healthcare organizations and the women physicians who work for them. It was uh, published in January of 2021, and it is absolutely as it's described, which is a step-by-step process, really, for organizations and institutions who, who need and want to tackle this very important issue. And I also should mention that In December of 2021, a colleague of mine, Dr. Reshma Jogsi, and I published an article in the New England Journal that is a kind of nice, much shorter addition to the work that was in the book. Perfect. We'll put a link to both of those resources in the show notes here so everyone can access that information as well. Let's kind of walk through group by group. What can a woman do to change their own pay gap and to advocate for other women? So I just want to start off by saying that I wholeheartedly believe that the primary responsibility for closing the gender pay gap in medicine rests squarely on the shoulders of our institutions for so many reasons that essentially I just unpacked and that are unpacked in the book and the article in the New England Journal of Medicine. However, on an individual level, the most important, the critical contributor to pay equity is understanding the playing field, the rules of the game. So what do I mean by that? Women need to know that there are several commercially available benchmarking data sets that institutions rely on to determine compensation. One of the most commonly used in medicine is the Association of American Medical Colleges Faculty Salary Survey, which has intentionally been made affordable for purchase online by individuals. Additionally, women job candidates need to inquire about and get an understanding of target ranges around these benchmarks that are held by whether it's an organization, an institution, a practice, the target ranges around those benchmarks and the metrics for placement in those ranges to ensure that they're being paid equitably at the beginning and throughout their careers. I like that. Knowledge is power. What about for our male allies? What can they do to help close that gender gap? I I really love that question. So by reflecting on their own decision-making and perceptions about what leaders look like and how men and women should behave, that is number one, self-reflection. Because we all have biases, right? And we need to understand them so we can mitigate them. Number two, 
our allies, our male allies need to be mindful of the language they use in their introductions and their evaluations. Linguistic biases implicitly communicate stereotypes and contribute to the maintenance of gender norms that women have less standing and less expertise. You know, we know from a lot of research that women physicians and, and faculty are introduced with their professional titles considerably less often than men are and are evaluated with fewer standout adjectives, despite similar qualifications. Additionally, male allies can pay attention, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention in situations in which unconscious biases can emerge. So recruiting, hiring, compensation, evaluation, and promotion. And last but certainly not least, our male allies need to be intentionally sponsoring high potential women for leadership opportunities. All right, let's get to the crux of it. You said it from the start. This is about institutions. It's about leadership making intentional changes. What are a few things that institutions can do to decrease the gender pay gap? We really need to build organizational or institutional cultures in which men and women are not limited by role expectations. At the same time, we have to recognize that closing the gender pay gap is also a critical business endeavor, requiring the same rigor and attention to detail afforded other operating costs. So what that means is our human resource, our finance colleagues, our operations colleagues are going to need to take a good hard look at basic assumptions underlying compensation methodologies to understand the expectations and the outcomes they generate. Also to create new approaches that better account for unique contributions of women and biases facing them. And last but not least, to track and report gender metrics at all compensation touch points. So, you know, initial hire, promotion, et cetera. You mentioned sponsorship before. Uh, can you expand a little bit upon what you mean by that and what role that plays in closing the gender pay gap? Sure. So, you know, sponsorship is super important. I'm going to define it in a minute because it actualizes the value of equal opportunity within an organizational structure. And sponsorship differs from mentorship. So folks in, in medicine are probably more familiar with the term mentorship. Sponsorship started to be discussed in the business literature. I, I should say that before entering medicine, I was uh, in corporate finance. So my whole medical career, I have spent time keeping up reading the business literature. And in about 10 to 15 years ago, there was this discussion around this new term called sponsorship, which is directly related to highlighting and supporting the career advancement of high potentials through spotlighting their expertise and their work and bring it to the attention of folks and opportunities where they can, you know, advance and move forward in their careers. And the business community early on showed that sponsorship versus mentorship was really useful to achieving these goals of equitable advancement for women. And so mentorship was something I think that the medical community has really been based on for centuries, probably. But sponsorship medicine was late to the table. And so it was only really about 
2014 when uh, there started to be discussion of how we can deploy this effort to help support women in medicine and science. And I'm proud to say that one of the earliest conversations in the medical literature about sponsorship was put out there uh, by a colleague of mine, Dr. Britter Roy and I, when we published some early data on a sponsorship initiative that I established for the Society of General Internal Medicine. The last piece about sponsorship versus mentorship I want to make sure I clarify is Mentorship is not typically based on someone's organizational impact. It is more about skill building and can be quite personal as well as professional, where sponsorship is directly anchored in an individual, a sponsor's organizational knowledge and influence. And so can be quite transactional and really is predicated on moving the protege, which is like a mentee, but a protege forward in her career. What can people that are higher up on the echelon, the C-suite or even leadership within side of um, different departments or institutions, how can they specifically make a difference in closing this gender pay gap with sponsorship? Well, it's a really good question. And I will tell you how sponsorship relates to closing the gender pay gap in medicine goes back to the way we traditionally compensate folks in medicine, which is, you know, in these four domains, one being, as I said, kind of base salary, the other one being productivity, then organizational rank and seniority. And then the last piece is leadership. And so what sponsorship does is it provides opportunity for leadership. And, you know, talent is universal, but opportunity is not. And sponsorship provides opportunity. Women in medicine and science have a visibility gap. Their talents need to be seen. Anything else that you think we need to know about closing the gender pay gap? While few people would argue with equal pay for equal work, it's how to achieve this goal that overwhelms institutions and their leaders. And so, you know, organizations do need a roadmap. And this is why I published my book. Organizations need to learn how to assess their current compensation methodologies and how they're perpetuating pay inequities, how to build the governance structures, the coalitions, and the processes necessary to incorporate these equity principles into routine business practices and how to create the dialogue, consistent messaging, and cascaded information to achieve transformation, organizational transformation around gender equity. I think we have a lot to learn from the quality movement, the QI movement. 20 years ago, the Institute of Medicine called the U.S. medical community to action to prevent deaths related to low quality care. And just like QI, for gender equity to progress from exhortation to intentional action is going to require measurement, reporting, and incentives. Institutions have to start somewhere. They have to do something. They have to track gender representation among applicants, offers, promotions, leadership roles, departures. And they also need to expect unconscious bias training for everyone involved in those career inflection points. And then conduct salary audits because, you know, we we can only manage what we measure. And once those salary audits are done, institutions have to start 
taking a look at where along the career continuum the gender pay gap is the most significant paying particular attention to these new hires right out of training. There has been so much data looking at how the pay gap begins right after training where it is not rationalizable, right? If there's any point along the career continuum where physicians and faculty are most equal in terms of background experience, it is right out of training. And so pick a driver of those disparities and tackle it as we've talked about. Pulse check. There is a gender pay gap. Women physicians make 72 cents on every dollar that their male counterparts make. Tradition has structured compensation to benefit what are considered traditionally masculine roles and attributes. There are four basic components to compensation. Base salary, productivity, seniority, and leadership roles. Base salary. Know what the expected range is, and institutions should make sure that at that key entry point, there is not a gap. Productivity. We need to look at what we consider is impactful and meaningful and compensate accordingly. Women, when you volunteer for something, ask yourself how this impacts your own productivity. Advocate for policies that encourage gender equity and expectations in family building. Seniority and rank. Women tend not to advance as quickly, and bias shows up in our evaluations. Every decision maker should take an IAT and learn how to mitigate those biases. Leadership. There are fewer women in leadership positions. We must turn this around, and it will take sponsorship, intentional advocacy for a woman with high potential to improve her career trajectory within an institution. Much of this boils down to the institution. Track compensation and advancement based on gender and be transparent about it. If you are in leadership, this is you. Well, that was a lot of information. (laughs) I think I need to go read the textbook to really understand all that. I don't doubt it. The good news is her New England Journal of Medicine article can be your own cliff notes. Let us know how your department is addressing the gender pay gap at Impulse Podcast. And share this podcast, article, and textbook with people in your institution to keep the conversation going. Thank you to our department for supporting these two women podcast hosts. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for your ongoing support. See y'all next time for our final episode on women in emergency medicine on how to be an ally. (laughs) 